Hi, I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. It is actually, Jonathan, our 13th episode. Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov to you, Shakoyach. I should really be <laughs> dancing and singing. So, dancing and singing, singing especially in a high-pitched voice, wearing a scratchy, <laughs> uncomfortable suit. I'm having flashbacks to the year I turned 13. And this is a much more comfortable experience. I've got to <laughs> I'm still waiting for those embarrassing bar mitzvah photos of yours. Uh, yeah, I, I realize want... actually you will never see any photographs of me as a bar mitzvah boy because both the event and the party itself were all during the Sabbath. It was a Shabbat bar mitzvah and party. And therefore no cameras were used by my orthodox affiliated parents and so there are no pictures there are no photographs at all which i think is rather um that shows some great deal of foresight on their part <laughs> some 40 odd years ago i think that was very shrewd because it means you cannot embarrass me or need even though i know you will not stop you will not stop trying there are no challenge photographs. accepted challenge accepted. i will find i will find the photos um so this is uh, very exciting it's our uh, pod mitzvah yeah. <laughs> uh, we are we are now accountable for all our sins. We cannot blame our parents for anything. Not getting our points across on this podcast or anything. It's very it's very uh, exciting. And uh, this week, consider the it, our bar mitzvah present this week. Uh, uh, Cabinet Minister, Office uh, Minister uh, Michael Gove is in Israel. That's uh, right. That is year. our bar mitzvah gift uh, as Britain <laughs> to you in Israel. Forget the fountain pen. My gr- gr- father would have got. Forget the digital watch which was state-of-the-art in 1980, which I got. Instead, we have wow. given you um, Cabinet Minister Michael Gove <laughs> travelling along with uh, Deputy uh, Chief Medical Officer Jonathan Van Tam, uh, who has become a bit of a media darling here, going to Israel to check out um, uh, how brilliantly Israel has handled its vaccination rollout. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think most people here interpret this as being preparing the ground uh, for Britain to do what Israel has done, which is the introduction of vaccine passports. Very controversial here. Yeah, I was thinking about how controversial it is in in Britain and in Europe, the whole conversation, and in the United States. It's amazing how the whole issue of sort of infringing on civil liberties is not was not even an issue in Israel, right? I mean, that kind of passed without public discourse, the whole issue of, of the, of the uh, green passports. Yeah, it's funny. Um, here, it's it's been very big, and that could be that sort of English tradition or British tradition of of liberty. Truth is, that that is often honoured more in the breach. There are more CCTV cameras. I think in Britain, than more or less any country outside China. But the the public narrative, the thing we tell ourselves in Britain is, oh, we care tremendously about civil liberties. And therefore, people are very upset about uh, vaccine passports, the idea of having to show your papers. And they think there'll be discrimination against those groups who, and individuals who did not want to take a vaccine passport. And so I reckon Michael Gove and Jonathan Van Tam want to check out Israel and come back and say, look, we looked at this place and it's all going really well and there's nothing for you 
to fear. The thing I can't help but notice is this. I, I, I think it may be the first time that Israel has been in, in the news and in the media here for a sustained period for a story that isn't about the conflict or politics yeah. in Israel. I don't know whether that's ever happened before for this length of time. So now it's getting on for months that you hear Israel on the news and chances are it's not about, you know, the, the West Bank. It's not about war. It's a, or, or Netanyahu and his cabinet. It is instead about um, how it's handled COVID. And I think that may be a shift, actually, in how uh, Israel is discussed in, 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 in the media discourse in this country and perhaps elsewhere around the world. Yeah, let's see how long that lasts. Uh, by the yeah. way, both countries are actually talking about also uh, a, a travel corridor which means that one day we could actually record this podcast in the same room or I just know, on a plane. Maybe I know, plane. We, we could meet at Heathrow Departure Lounge, couldn't we? <laughs> like they do when they have those sort of uh, back, diplomatic back channels. No, I think there's, and you know, I have to say people are already writing to us saying, please, will we do an unholy live in front of an audience? Uh, you know, this is imagining a day when people can do anything in front of an audience. But yeah, uh, that will be wonderful when we can do that. And I think Gove is uh, a pioneer in that regard. He's hoping to blaze a trail so that yeah exactly there can be safe tra passage between the two countries and it you know I, I, it seems very likely given Israel's um, numbers on COVID and, and now Britain's. So uh, let's say we're sitting in the Heathrow lounge and you're pouring me a stiff drink and we're going to talk about Israeli politics haven't talked about that in a while. We haven't we haven't had the chance to so go on what's happening. <laughs> well remember that children's book Alexander and the terrible horrible no good very bad day. Yes, that is what has been uh, going on with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu this week. Uh, look, I think it's uh, safe to. I'm going to say something very dramatic. Are you preparing the drum roll? I'm gripping the the, the arms <laughs> of my chair. I think we are. Uh, Netanyahu is on the verge of possibly <laughs> losing power. It's with Netanyahu. You always have to give that right. You always you have to say the possibly. Um, but uh, it, it has been a, a very bad week for him. Let's sort of set the stage. Um, the option. The only option right now that he had, and we did, talked about this a lot, Jonathan, right, that that uh, uh, coalition that would stretch from Betzalel Smotrich uh, and, and Itamar Ben-Gvir on the extreme right to the Islamist uh, Islamist movement, Mansour Abbas's party, Ram, um, that is not going to happen, right? Uh, uh, Smotrich is very clear on saying, no way. You know, it's funny, you asked me last week if the uh, circle is anywhere is any more squareable. It's not a circle. It's not a square. It's a unicorn, right? It's not going to happen. Um, Mansour Abbas, uh, who I interviewed two days ago, said, you know, I'm, we're sick and tired of hearing Smotrich telling us that we're uh, support terror. If Netanyahu can't get his act together, he can't get his coalition together. We're done with this, right? Uh, so, so, so more than anything, it was is was Smotrich who, you know, if anything, Netanyahu just pushed as hard as he could into the Knesset, telling Netanyahu, I "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bend for you to uh, create this uh, coalition." Now. Abbas is not only saying, he's also doing, and that is extremely important in a, in a very crucial vote for Netanyahu. Abbas crossed the road in the very last minute, joined the Israeli anti-Bibi bloc, and voted against Netanyahu while the voting actually was already in session. Um, and what actually happened is that Netanyahu lost power over the Knesset. Um, I'm not going to get, you know, too much into the, too granular into the details, but uh, uh, the Knesset Arrangement Committee is the one that controls the Knesset until there is a government. Netanyahu lost control over that. Now, the most important thing that happened is that the architect of 
uh, Netanyahu's downfall in this regard was Gidon Sal. Remember him, who broke away from the Likud, started his own power, thought for a minute he might become even prime minister, but completely crossed the road into the anti-Bibi bloc. And he was seen, and now an image that has become, I would want to say, almost iconic in the, this week in Israel, kind of definitely this, yeah. a gif. Uh, 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 he, he winked. You saw him wink behind Netanyahu's back in the Knesset. And that was so symbolic, right? Netanyahu was usually the perpetrator of these tricks, and now he was the uh, the recipient. Um, and the whole kind of political world in Israel and the whole country kind of saw how he was duped by his his rival. And that was very, very important, I think. Like the, I want to say the wink that sailed uh, a thousand tweets. But that in that regard, that was a really important picture this week. No, I love that the the kind of maneuvering. It's not original, but on my part, I think. It, do we give our producer Leo Freeman credit for calling it the West Wink? Um, I think that's um, a bit of. <laughs> we give a, him credit for all titles, Jonathan. That's really neat because um, it was a classic bit of sort of beltway politics maneuvering, etc. But it is it's entirely captured in that very human gesture and exactly the schema. The arch schemer, Bibi Netanyahu, now undone, but he's the schemey. You know, he's undone <laughs> by other people scheming, and somehow the wink just sort of captures that. I mean, it's um, fascinating to me because, uh, you know, apart from those of us who follow this in great detail, I don't think, you know, for example, in offices of prime ministers and presidents around the world, they will be paying any attention to this because the assumption is that Bibi is going to be on the throne of Israel as long as Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> he's on the throne here. He's just there forever. And it's kind of like, you know, tell us when he's actually gone. But people are kind of like, I'll wait, I'll believe it when I see it, because they think he's a kind of Harry Houdini figure. You know, he is, or to mix the metaphor, like one of those old 1920s movies, he's tied to the railway tracks and the train is coming. And somehow by the end of the reel, he's going to have wriggled out of it. But what you've said says the odds are getting increasingly stacked against him. Yes, I think that what we need to sort of keep in mind, uh, Israelis kind of know this and feel it, but I don't know if the sort of outside world uh, uh, knows this. Netanyahu is thoroughly convinced that he must remain in power um, for his legal situation, right? In other words, he n thinks that remaining with the power and the gravitas of, of uh, being a prime minister will uh, um, create a situation in which the judges in his trial and the witnesses and the state's witnesses are less likely to return with a, a guilty verdict. This is what he's building his whole sort of a rationale on, right? That being, staying a prime minister is a getting out of jail card. So I'm going to take a step back for a minute and say that we still have uh, 12 days for his mandate. You can still see the crazy, surprising, you know, scenario. What's been sort of floating around this week is saying Netanyahu actually saying, you know what? I'm stepping down and someone else from the Likud is going to become prime minister for a rotation for a year, for two years. And then no one has anything to object because you are just objecting me personally. Right. So let's see how that happens. I don't know how, you know, I mean, it is possible in the uh, by Israeli law. I don't know how plausible it is for Netanyahu to actually say I am stepping down. I would say that the likeliest option right now 
Um, if you'd say you need put all your chips on the you know on the board, I would say it is we're looking we're staring down the barrel of fifth elections, right? Because for the Netanyahu, and you see that in the way that he is attacking Naftali Bennett, because he he kind of realizes that he doesn't have a government, so he doesn't have to woo Bennett anymore, but he needs to attack him to make the other option of another government impossible. So that is what he's doing. That's how you kind of realize that what he thinks the best option for him right now is to stay on the wheel, go to fifth elections. And then see what happens. If he were to step down, how does that help him with his legal problem? Because then doesn't he lose it, it doesn't, the that's why I, That's why I don't think it's realistic for him as an idea. It, it sort of uh, opens up this. I think many people in the Kudu crime are trying to convince him, give it to someone who isn't dangerous for you, right? Not someone who's trying to usurp you, just like a Yuval Steinitz or a Yariv Levine, who I'll call him like the Mitch McConnell of the Israeli parliament, right? Give it to him for a while and then take it back. I, I think I agree. And you, you, you made that point that that for someone who is so crucially attached to the position uh, because of his legal woes, I think that would be a very big deal for him yeah. uh, to give it up. It would you know, raise everyone else from the deadlock, but it's also you know, going to create a very, very right-wing government yeah. uh, in any case. So we should watch out for it. It's the sort of Putin-Medvedev maneuver where you st- you yep. stay really in charge, but you have some nominal t- titular figure who's an ally take the top job and then you swap back out again. Um, I'm sure Bibi will enjoy this parallel with Putin. I mean, one thing I love doing is um, looking for little slivers of, uh, of light in amongst all the gloom. And to me, one of the positives to take from all of this, in all this horse trading, and I think we've made this point before on the podcast, but part of it is this figure of Mansour Abbas and his Ram party. And somehow... You know, that is being normalized, even if it does shake out without the, that government being form, uh, formed, the idea that at least one of the pieces on the board is an Arab party. And surely, and I don't know when that day is going to come, but, uh, you know, I saw that Yaya Lapid, the opposition leader, had meetings with uh, leaders from the joint list, Ahmed Tibi and Ayman Alda and everything. It's just becoming a little bit more normal to imagine Arab parties being players in the coalition arithmetic. And that, you know, that has to be a good thing. As I say, it's a tiny bit of silver lining. There's obviously a very big cloud, not least for Bibi uh, himself. Um, I wanted to cross over to a different part of the world and head west and talk with you uh, about a figure who is uh, big, currently in media in America, um, but I think maybe one day in politics, and that is Tucker Carlson of uh, Fox News. He sometimes is the top-rated uh, news anchor on cable TV, sometimes loses out that top spot to Rachel Maddow of MSNBC. The two of them kind of jostle to be the number one shot, uh, number one show on cable. Uh, he's in the news as we speak because of his seen to be very tasteless reaction to the triple guilty verdict against uh, Derek Chauvin, the uh, former uh, Minneapolis policeman who has been found responsible for the death of George Floyd. Uh, And Tucker Carlson did a couple of weird interviews on on TV in which he, in one, laughed in a very weird and deranged way uh, and was taking a kind of, you know, against the grain line on that. But I wanted uh, particularly to foreground him because... Of all things, the Anti-Defamation League um, has called for him to be fired by Fox News. The Anti-Defamation League, the mainly Jewish organization that campaigns against racism and anti-Semitism in the United States. Quite unusual for them to make this move and say, we want Tucker Carlson gone uh, from his job. 
so I thought it'd be just, I mean, there's a specific reason for that, but it's worth sort of winding back the background to this, Jew, the, you know, Jewish attitude to Tucker Carlson, who he is. I mean, he's been, you know, he's this top rated show uh, on Fox. Uh, he has been talked about in the absence really of Donald Trump as the voice of, you know, populist conservatism, maybe even a kind of nationalist America first uh, 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 conservatism. Some people thinking he is in in effect a white nationalist. That's that's the position that's critical of him. But seeing that he's not just dominating media, but he's really a, ri a rising figure in politics, and they even talk of him running for president in twenty twenty four. That always worried, uh, has long worried the kind of pro Israel crowd because. He just does not make the usual kind of pro-Israel noises that are very familiar on the American right. This, despite the fact that, by the way, Yair Netanyahu, um, the, uh, the prime minister's son, the kind of Donald Trump junior of Israel, as I like to think of him, has tweeted, you know, that he met, tweeted a picture of himself, you know, arm round the shoulder of Tucker Carlson saying, oh, he's so pro-Israel, great friend of Israel. Actually, the evidence is really not there. He he doesn't do the usual, make the usual sort of ritual uh, noises in support of Israel. And if anything, really attacks big pro-Israel conservatives. And that has been noticed. But what's happened now that got the ADL perked up is that uh, Tucker Carlson earlier this month started talking in the language of replacement theory. This is the theory that the mainly white majority white population historically of America is being replaced by ethnic minorities and immigrants. And that is being done deliberately. And guess who's doing the replacing? You guessed it. It's the Jews. That's the theory. And people will remember, you know, in Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us was one of the slogans. Mm. And uh, Tucker Carlson went on air and sort of voiced that uh, on Fox. We can hear a bit of that right here. I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's, that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. This is a voting rights question. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? The power that I have yeah. as an American guaranteed at birth is one man, one vote, and they're diluting it. No, they're not allowed to do that. Why are we putting up with this? You know, I remember that, that day, <laughs> the, January 20th, when, when, when Trump left the uh, uh, White House and you had, you know, there's obviously a collective sort of sigh of relief uh, uh, among the American, amongst the American left. But you also had a lot of people asking a question. They said to themselves, you know, Trump was a real uh, was a populist, but obviously he ultimately failed. What happens if one day uh, a populist comes along who is sophisticated, intelligent uh, and successful? And that could be Tucker Carlson. That well may be when we look at the lineup of who will be the, the nominees in, in, in 2024 or 2023 when the sort of race heats up. And you mentioned Nikki Haley. You mentioned Mike Pompeo, very, very pro-Israeli, obviously, in the rhetoric. Um, Tucker Carlson, who is, is an interesting sort of uh, uh, figure in that because he is Trumpian in, in all regards, but he isn't at all um, pro-Israel, I, I would say maybe not very enthusiastic of Israel, but maybe more. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. He never talks about that, uh, at, at least from what I've seen uh, on his uh, on his program. And, and, you know, when you look at the fact that we, in four years, 
And again, it's interesting. I, I keep telling you that we have to recalibrate what we talk about Israelis, Israel's left and right, right? It's not Israel left and right. It's Israel pro-BB, anti-BB. And let's kind of use that to recalibrate the conversation in the United States when we discuss what is pro-Israel and anti-Israel, right? Because you have all those research, especially the Pew uh, research that says that uh, it always asks, what is, your, uh, are you, what is your view of the Israeli people? What is your view of the Israeli government? And you always have... Democrats basically saying 55% favorable of Israeli people, 20% favorable of the Israeli government, and Republicans are basically saying 77% favorable of Israeli people and 60% favorable of the Israeli government. Why am I saying this? A, because you had an alignment for four years, and Democrats looked at it and saw Trump equals Netanyahu equals Israel. And I think that made it hard for them to sort of overlook that or circumvent that equation. Now that you have Trump out of it, we don't know what the Netanyahu situation is. How does that shift the relation to Israel? And if you look at four years into the future and you say maybe a Tucker Carlson in the Republican Party who has no affiliation to Israel, basically, and on the other side, you might not again have this sort of traditional uh, relationship with Israel that is, you know, embodied with the Joe Bidens and the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's of the world. What are you going to see there? I think that Israelis should be very, um, um, you know, concerned about that. I kind of shifted away from your Tucker Carlson conversation. No, no, I though. think it's really interesting because I think there is a generational shift. It's so interesting that the person who embodies the traditional democratic affiliation for Israel is Joe Biden, and he's so old. And similarly, Nancy Pelosi, and she's so old. These are people in their late 70s. They're, they're mature. mature uh, he, they, they embody that. And the people of the next generation, so whether it's AOC in the, among the Democrats or Tucker Carlson, I mean, he's not he's super young, but he's a generation down. Yep. Uh, they are in a very different place. And I, I think it's just interesting that the pro-Israel crowd got worried simply because Tucker Carlson, as you say, never even talked about Israel that made them think, what's he hiding? You know, what's his <laughs> attitude? Uh, and the fact that he has, as I say, platforms these people who are very critical. Yeah. I mean, you just said uh, Tucker Carlson and AOC in the same sentence. So somewhere a minefield just blew up. Yes, although, um, you know, that <laughs> maybe is the future of politics. It's going to be those people. But, but I completely agree when you look at the research and you see that the younger you are in the United States, and this has no no connection to your political affiliation, the younger you are, the less you have a connection to Israel. Which you actually brought out in your very brilliant reports from uh, the United States for uh, for Channel 12, that generational shift. So I think that's, um, that's definitely there. I was going to just say one last thing about Tucker Carlson, uh, which interests me, which is I think he is the... Uh, protege or child of Pat Buchanan, more that people look to Trump as the uh, as the obvious the guide for Tucker Carlson, and I think instead the person you want to look at is Pat Buchanan, huh. TV host in the nineties uh, with Tucker Carlson on this show Crossfire. Pat, that was Pat Buchanan's domain, and Tucker Carlson oh. came up as a very young uh, presenter on that when he was in his twenties. But the point about Pat Buchanan is. He was Trump before Trump in the sense of this nationalist, populist, anti-elite guy, but also really unusually anti-Israel, famously referred to, you know, Congress as the Amen corner uh, for the for the state of Israel and referred to Capitol Hill as Israeli occupied territory, um, which wow. shaded into a kind of anti-Jewish trope. Um uh, you know, and Pat Buchanan is, I think, you know, if Tucker Carlson takes things further politically, that interface between cable TV and nationalism with a sort of anti-Israel and maybe even something else tinge, people will find themselves going back to the works of 
Pat Buchanan, who I've seen actually in his in his dotage, is run, writing blogs defending and, and boosting Tucker Carlson. So there's definitely a connection there um, and uh, one to watch, even with some degree uh, of trepidation. <laughs> I can't I can't not think there's a soundbite running in my head every time someone says Pat Buchanan. I don't know if you remember this. I was a teenager, so I didn't really care about the world. But I remember that he was fighting against the UN about something. I don't remember what it was, but obviously it's Pat Buchanan, so he's anti-UN. But he said, and, and the Secretary General was Boutrous Ghali, and he said, we don't take our orders from Boo Boo Ghali. I remember that soundbite for some reason. Very, And very that was sort of like twisting his name, um, uh, obviously on purpose, which of course became a Trumpian trope. Years. You know, um, I was just thinking of our listener in Boca Raton, which I have te- <laughs> who I've teased a few times. Yes. Um, the 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 other la- the last thing we should probably say about Pat Buchanan on this, but you'll remember this. Is what I thought you were going to refer to when you were talking about being a teenager, because you are so young. But of course, I was much older and covered this. But the Florida deadlocked election of two thousand. <gasps> yes. One of the giveaways was in that in Palm Beach County there was the famous butterfly ballot. Oh, of course, the this, people voted for Pat Buchanan instead right, of voting. The way for Al you Gore. knew something had gone wrong was all these. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, and elderly Jews and most of them Democrats who obviously wanted to vote for Al Gore were registered as voting this huge bounce for Pat Buchanan who was running as a third party candidate there and you know that was the moment you knew something was up because there was no way the Jews of Boca Raton were voting for uh, you know white nationalist Pat Buchanan or nationalist Pat Buchanan uh, if we want to be fair to him all right we have to dole out some awards uh, the yes. chutzpah uh, slot uh, very tempted to uh, nominate uh, Naomi Wolf, once admired as a great feminist critic, now an anti-vax activist who told Fox News that the beloved figure of Anthony Fauci, the main you know anti-coronavirus doctor who's been the lead uh, anti-infectious disease doctor for the United States for 40 years, is uh, doesn't work for us, she said. He doesn't work for America. Uh, he's conflicted uh, because she said he got a million dollars from the state of Israel. Uh, so that was her uh, pitch. Uh, it turns out that Antifauci did indeed win a prize uh, from an Israeli university, uh, the prestigious Dan David Prize from Tel Aviv University. But she went on Fox News to say he doesn't work for us. He receives money from Israel. So Naomi Wolf gets a uh, chutzpah nomination for going to the dark side. But she really has to bow to uh, the greatest uh, chutzpah uh, event of the week. Uh, maybe not massive uh, news for everyone all over the world, but for those of us here uh, in uh, uh, the home, as we would think of it, of football here in England, the Super League gave itself that name. So, uh, the breakaway of 12 European clubs. It's launched on Sunday. It was over and done by Tuesday evening. But the loathing... That was uh, a the, quick coup. It was, a qu- it was a quick and failed coup. But what a chutzpah for these uh, owners of these clubs to think that they were just mere corporate assets rather than treasured and cherished institutions with roots in the towns. I talk to you now a 10-minute walk away from Arsenal Stadium. Uh, you know, my kids, up and me, we go, we put the scarves on, we go. It matters to our local area. It isn't just a sort of brand that can be uh, sold off and or, or exploited for a global market. And they tried and fan power meant that they failed. But I think they should get a chutzpah award for the effort. Yeah, I mean, what a what an idea of breathtaking arrogance, right? Of not yeah. realizing, not realizing that that, you know, I'm a, I'm a small uh, football expert. 
I would say an anti-football uh, expert. But that what it's What's about. What's your team, about, on it? I don't know your team. I will have to say Apoel Tel Aviv because if I don't say that, I won't be able to return. My my door will be you know mysteriously locked when I try and get home. So I'm going to say Apoel Tel Aviv. Very and, good. That would be my and, Israeli team and too. And Sotovoce, I'll say I don't care. Oh, but okay. the <laughs> but just that you know even I realize that 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 football is about that kind of competition and about hope and that these these. Uh, uh, groups were founded by by work. I mean, how can you do that? How can you do what they what they tried to do? I, I you know, I um, a very uh, smart person that I follow on Twitter, uh, Jonathan Friedland. You might know him. Uh, <laughs> spoke about how this also kind of illustrates the fact that the government is sort of powerless, right, in the face of this um, of the of this kind of move. Well, it was like a test. I mean, in the end, the government didn't have to take that on because the league collapsed itself. And you put your finger on what was wrong with it, which is it guaranteed places for these teams, no matter how well or badly they did. But um, government could have been tested if they persisted because there were people saying, look, if you look at the law and the European competition law, there's nothing anyone can do. These are global companies. And what can a mere national government do to stop them doing whatever they like with their product and with their with their properties. And I thought that was going to be a real test for politics because the whole nation here was more or less united against this idea. No one disliked it. The government said, we are going to do whatever it takes to stop it. If they had tried and failed, my worry was really for the state, for democratic politics itself, I worried that there would be people in this country who would say, well, what is the point of voting for a government if they cannot even do this where the whole country agrees? agrees on something they're powerless to do it so that that was what i felt was this, this why this was an issue that went beyond football it was really about who do you know who owns these things where is does power lie is it with nations or is it with these transnational corporations and this is an issue that you know activists and analysts have been talking about in the abstract for years but suddenly you had the great mass of the british population and and similarly in spain uh, and in Italy, uh, who really felt it in their lives. And uh, it could have been a really fascinating political moment, as it is they've collapsed on their own behalf. But so, so much for chutzpah. What about if we're finding silver in the clouds? What about the uh, the mensch? <laughs> who should be on? Okay, so, so for the mention of the week, I invite you to relieve yourself of your usual um, English Republican vibes. If I celebrate the 95th birthday of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, Her Majesty. I Should I be standing up for that. this bit? You'll need. Should, Should I, I be stand- standing up or Should you? Because I'm Am still I- thinking, I don't know. I'm thinking of the British man. Maybe both of us <laughs> would probably solve it that way. Um, so I know you're not a big fan of the monarchy. We dedicated a, almost a whole program discussing that. But... Um, I think that you can't ignore the remarkable life story of this uh, lady who uh, was actually never born into the line of succession, now is the head of state for nearly 70 years, and obviously a bittersweet celebration for her in the midst of the morning pe- period uh, over uh, Prince Philip. We have to say something about that image that kind of shocked the wor- world or saddened the world of her sitting by herself in the cathedral uh, in, the, in the funeral. No, it's absolutely right. Just on a human level, uh, a, a woman, as you say, turning 95, Sitting widowed alone is a very, very poignant image. And next year, incredibly, the Platinum Jubilee. There's never been one, um, a monarch on the throne for 70 years. 
And, and I've written this a few times, that she is this connection to what is still the defining event of modern Britain, which is the Second World War, 1940. You know, you look at stand Britain standing alone, 1945, she's there on the balcony alongside Winston Churchill. You know, it is she is absolutely um, core uh, to the kind of the, the, the British imagination, how they literally imagine how we imagine ourselves. And so, you, you know, even a small R Republican like me cannot challenge that the bond is very strong. And frankly, it will be even stronger after the funeral at the weekend, because the sympathy for seeing her alone like that, and also the fact they couldn't do a normal funeral because they were complying with mm -hmm. COVID regulations, you know, even the head of state has to comply with the rules. So okay, I will I will park, make a monarchist of you yet. <laughs> I will park my Republican sentiment and allow that Mensch nomination. I will chip in one of uh, my own, and that is for the a U.S. federal judge who this week ruled that a uh, an Orthodox Jewish Navy sailor, a Hasidic sailor, doesn't have to shave his beard, for now anyway, uh, be, in order to be fitted for uh, the seal of a gas mask, uh, but instead can... Uh, be exempted from that uh, on the grounds of you know, a religious exemption. I mean, the big leap, the big thing that leaps out at me uh, from this story is: Can you believe there is a Hasidic sailor? I mean, <laughs> Petty Officer Third Class Edmund Delishkia, if I'm pronouncing that right, who oh, is wow. serving oh. aboard the aircraft carrier, the USS Theodore Roosevelt in Asia. He is uh, apparently a, Hari a Haredi oh. sailor. I mean, even a Jewish sailor is for me a bit of a stretch. Boats, <laughs> Jews, I don't know. But water, I know Water. I know that's wrong because I know I think there's even an Israeli Olympic uh, windsurfer and all that. So yep. I know that's very out of date. But uh, but but a Hasidic Hasidish sailor in the navy. It for me it was news and good for that judge saying the a sailor can be exempted for doesn't have to shave his beard. That feels so like great a, news for Hasidic sailors and hipsters alike. Yes, exactly. <laughs> hipster, hipster or Hasid is one of my favourite games. <laughs> or both. Or both. Um, but anyway, he's exempted, so good for him. Um, that is a uh, triumph on, uh, for our Mensch Awards, the two of them. Wouldn't, why don't we try and get the Queen and the Hasidic sailor into the to have a meeting? They can be in a photograph receiving jointly their awards. How likely or unlikely is that? Um, if you've enjoyed our little tour around Israel Wait, and the Jewish world, you must recommend and review us favorably. Uh, Give us a five-star review. And Yonit wants to say something. I do. How did you figure that with my Israeli nudging? Yeah, it, was, um, it was a tap I, on the I, shoulder. It was very elegantly done, don't you think? Um, no, we wanted to shout out to our listener, Tammuz. Uh, who wrote us on our Instagram page. Did we mention that we had an Instagram page, Jonathan? This is your line usually, but it's two Jews on the news, only letters, no numbers. And she wrote us. Uh, she's uh, 14 years old, and she says, uh, I've been listening to your podcast. I will not miss a single episode. Uh, it's the best English lesson there is because I learn a lot from it, and even my grades uh, in the English profession have improved a lot. That is so sweet, uh, and it was so nice to get a message, and uh, we're really uh, happy that you're listening. Tammuz, listen more to Jonathan than you do to me if you're trying to learn English. I'm not um, sure about that because all of my colloquial Britishisms, but Tammuz, that is fantastic. Stand down, Your Majesty. Stand down, <laughs> Hasidisha Sailor. The mensch must go to Tammuz. Well done, you. And uh, I dread to think what kind of awful English. Didn't I swear on last week's podcast? Oh, this is you did. awful. You did. Tammuz is going to learn uh, very bad habits. Let's, let's hope she wasn't listening. I do regret that. So, yes, uh, follow us, Two Jews, on the news, reviews, all the rest of it. Mention us to your friends. And who do we want to say thank you to besides Tammuz? 
and our uh, glorious, I want to give him some sort of award, but I don't know what. So we'll think about it until next week. Our executive producer, uh, Lior Friedman, and Rom Atik, head of podcasts, and uh, Danny Nudelman, and Irad Eshel for original music. And thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Yonit. See you next time. <laughs>